today on Ag News Daily. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here on this in West Central Iowa rainy Tuesday afternoon. I am joined by my co-host Delaney Howell. And Delaney, how are you doing today? I am doing pretty good, Mike. Yeah, it looks like we're getting some scattered showers here across all of Iowa. But really, Nebraska is getting hit pretty hard. Nebraska, Kansas is getting hit pretty hard right now, it looks like, on the forecast, on the radar. Yep. And the storms I was tracking earlier were projected to move, you know, north and east across the state of Iowa, mm-hmm. parts of Minnesota, parts of Wisconsin, which we know, thanks to Daniel Olson last week, has just been waterlogged like crazy. A lot of guys are trying to get hay put up. I know I've heard from a lot on Twitter that are switching from typically they'd be round baling, but because there have been so few windows of dryness, I've seen demand for custom chopping for making haylage has skyrocketed this year. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And and we got the crop planting progress report out yesterday. I'm not saying that right. Crop, what's it called? The crop progress crop planting? Progress. Okay. Progress. We, we got that out crop yesterday. Planting yes. We uh, got those reports out yesterday showing that where 92% of the projected corn crop has been planted and about 77% of our soybean crop has been planted. But uh saw these fun facts today when I was searching for some news comparing this year, this crop year, to 1993, which is, of course, when we had really, really wet season then as well. In 1993, the corn crop was 100% planted by this time. And as I mentioned, we're 92% planted right now. In 1993, the corn yield ended up being 16% lower than trend line. And so... These are just some interesting facts for us. So if we if we end up with the yield being 10% below expected trend line nationwide, and so far USDA has pegged us at 6% below trend line with their lowering of the WASI report last week, that puts us at an average yield of 159 bushels per acre. If we see yield end up 16% below expected trend line like in 1993, that puts yield at 148 bushels per acre. And then lastly, Iowa State put out a report, and I emailed Dr. Chad Hart to see if we could get him on the podcast to discuss that with us. But they are forecasting the yield to come in at a 21% decline because of the delayed planting. That puts our average yield at 139 bushels per acre. Not too far off the 127, I believe it was in 2012, the drought year. Yeah, and uh, 2012 was a good, profitable year for producers. Well, if they if got were, their corn to grow. Right. Or if and, they took the harvest price option on right. uh, their, their crop insurance. And if you were a row crop producer. Probably not so much if you were a livestock producer. Right. Livestock producers, I mean, that was one of the most challenging years on yeah. record as they were trying to source feed. And, well, you know, I mentioned Daniel Olson earlier there from uh, Forage Innovations. Yeah, it sounds like we're already seeing that forage uh situation getting tight in dairy country mm-hmm. all of this rain we might see decent tonnage but then we're going to be hammered with uh with poor quality hay so and this could be another unit it's a huge challenge for livestock operations yes it absolutely could be 
Well, I've got an update just to kind of piggyback right on what you're talking about, Delaney. Um, 19 analysts were surveyed by Bloomberg, and they are predicting prevent plant acres for corn to total, um, excuse me, yeah, for corn, corn alone, total 6.7 million acres, and they're predicting bean acres to be 2.2 million uh, taking prevent plant. Okay, so about just about 9 million in total. Yes, yes, 9 million, which would be the most in many, many years. I don't have that stat handy, but uh, they see the biggest risk being in that east central, northwestern um, Indiana and Ohio area across north central Illinois, and then a big swath. Basically, Uticotans will know it as East River, South Dakota. Uh, that whole area is at risk. And then again in Nebraska, mm-hmm. eastern Nebraska, which is in both those states, that's feedlot country. I mean, that's big right. dairy country. Right. And those are the places that could see the most prevent plant, although we could see growers, as was talked about by Scott Irwin, look at planting some kind of a hardy cover that then they could get in there and harvest post-November 1 to uh, to use as feed, you know, a feedstock. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Tied over their, their feedstock a little bit. So we'll see what ends up happening. But, yes, the challenging year continues. I was talking to a couple of folks on Twitter and, you know, we had a few dry days last week. We mm-hmm. had, I think, four in the state of Iowa that were suitable for field work. A lot of folks were getting out, getting some stuff straight, sprayed. And a grower I was talking to said it was really weird to be hopping out of the planter because they're still working on soybean plantings to hop into the sprayer and go spray post-emerge on corn. He said, this is the first time I've ever had to do that. And it is certainly bizarre to be doing my June sprayings while, you know, trying to get my soybeans in the ground. Yeah, it is a bizarre year, that is for sure. Well, that's really unprecedented. Yes. Well, speaking of bizarre, Delaney, we continue to get news out of the White House that perhaps this meeting between President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping is going to happen. The bizarre mm-hmm. part is that President Trump claimed earlier today that the, that the teams from both sides, the U.S. Uh, trade rep team and the Chinese trade team, are going to go ahead and begin negotiations for the two leaders to go ahead and sit down in Osaka, Japan, next week. Uh, President Trump said, quote, had a very good phone conversation with President Xi of China. We will be having an extended meeting next week at the G20 in Japan. Our respective teams will begin talks prior to our meeting. That was a tweet earlier today that President Trump sent out. So maybe we'll get maybe we'll get some progress. I don't know. Maybe we'll see the markets find something positive in this meeting. Well, we saw Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross respond to that tweet by President Trump in an article he was quoted in by the Wall Street Journal, and he said, quote, I think the most that will come out of the G20 might be an agreement to actively resume talks. The most that might come is new ground rules for discussion and some sort of schedule for when detailed technical talks might resume. All right. Well, so at least he's keeping expectations low. Yeah, he's really he reigns back in. That's for sure. Yeah. So, okay. All right. Well, yeah, that makes sense. So the best we can hope for is that this talk will be the prelude to yet more talks. Yes, that is correct. While we're talking about the, while we're talking about trade on an international scale here, we've seen a couple of big trading partners for the U.S., including the European Union, Canada, China, and Australia, amongst others, are presenting questions to the WTO about the new trade assistance package that President Trump released what is it, almost a month ago now, it seems. And some of the questions that have been submitted through the WTO's committee 
is essentially questioning whether or not this tips the scales and makes things unequal for other producers. And of course, the U.S. put these these complaints out on other countries, so it seems only fair that they would do that against the U.S. as well. But among the questions being asked are, Canada asked, could the United States elaborate as to how this announcement made in the middle of the U.S. planting season will, quote, not distort planting decisions? Uh, China and the EU want to know how the payments will be categorized and whether or not they will fit within the U.S. spending limits. Um, And other concerns include just, you know, what will the farmer really earn from this? Will it create an unlevel playing field for folks on a global scale? Yes, yes. You know, this is more uh, back and forth trade gamesmanship. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I I got nothing to add on that one, Delaney. That's it's going to be an interesting story. It is. President Trump doesn't seem too concerned about what the WTO thinks and says anyway. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine it's going to affect his plans very much. But at the same time, looking towards the next administration, be it President Trump or in 2024, somebody different, um, you know, the WTO membership has been a good thing for American agriculture. It has helped get us into a lot of these other countries that are developing. So hopefully we do what we need to to at least uh, you know stay in as a member, I guess. Right, right. And if China's still in as a member, they're not going to kick us out. I wouldn't think. <laughs> no, I, no, I don't think that that was ever the concern. I think, so I'm not 100% sure, but I believe the WTO or the um, these countries could file, you know, some sort of claim against the U.S. Mm-hmm. or a lawsuit against the U.S. saying that we're creating yep. uneven scales, basically. Yep, and then they can use that to put retaliatory tariffs on. If the WTO says, yeah, this was not in accordance with our rules, you know, EU, you get to put on tariffs totaling X right. number of billions in China and blah, 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 and Canada, et cetera. So we'll see. Yes. Well, you know, this is a very trade-heavy day, but Delaney, I'll tell you, that is the news, other than weather, that is mm-hmm. uh, that is really in the ag world today. Another big story to come out of Canada is that China is now blocking pork imports from a third Canadian company. Um, As of Monday, China announced that Frigo Royal, which is a Canadian pork exporting firm, they said that China is currently holding their pork in its ports. Uh, The Chinese Customs Department claims that um, they were able to detect ractopamine in pork. And China is uh, is very adamant they're not going to allow any ractopork in country. Um, the interesting thing is that Palin, which is the, the brand name for, for Racto, created by Alanco, isn't sold in Canada. And Canadian hmm. hawk producers have been very, very diligent about not using Racto in most herds since 2013 because they wanted to have this market open to them in China. Um, so I, I guess maybe the story is if we take the Chinese at their word – Perhaps a smaller operator who is still using Racto was able to get his hogs in a shipment that went over there. China has said they are inspecting 100% of Canadian pork imports as they look for violations. Um, That seems kind of far-fetched. It certainly seems far more likely that uh, Frigo is now in the same boat as uh, Olamel and Drummond Export, as well as the Canola Exporters, where China is just taking out their frustrations on the Huawei deal with Canadian exporters. Remember, Canada uh, mm-hmm. arrested Meng uh, something. Huawei wasn't that her name? Well, that's the company. Is Huawei? Um, 
her name was something uh, Wan Wan Chao, Meng Wan Chao, who was the CFO of Huawei. Um, the Canadians arrested her for an American arrest warrant, and now China has been steadily taking out their frustrations on all Canadian products coming in. But they're not doing it with tariffs. They're doing it with uh, non-trade barriers. They're stopping stuff at the ports. They're slowing down the imports. They're just being very, very tough customers. And uh, the assumption is that is perhaps all being done at the direction of the leaders in Beijing. Hmm. You know, while we're talking about this, Mike, I don't remember if we've talked about this on the podcast before or not, but this isn't related to ractopamine, but it is related to the Chinese hog herd. Have you seen some of the videos of the Chinese like getting rid of some of the hogs that they suspect had African swine fever? You know, we we did talk about one video where the uh, the live hogs were being dumped into a massive pit to be mm-hmm. buried alive. Um, it didn't retweet it. Of course, can't verify that it was accurate. But what videos have you seen, Blaine? Yeah, I've seen that one, and then I also saw one last night. My boyfriend showed me that they, they'd seen one on Twitter as well of dumping gasoline on the hog herds and lighting them on fire, except the hogs didn't die. I think maybe some of them did, but for the oh, most God, part, most of them. Oh, God, they were live hogs yes. they were burning? Yes. Oh, my God, that's terrible. Yeah, like I said, though, I, I, I don't know if we can verify those for sure as being, you know, Chinese or else elsewise but horrid images Ugh, man i remember when i was young i'm going to tell a story here my dad has has passed on as a lot of our listeners know so he can't be uh can't be embarrassed by this but this would have been back in the mid 80s we were just getting into the hog operation we were a pasture farrow pasture finish hog operation we had about 200 sows we were pretty good sized for for our time and place and uh, this was all kind of new. You know, Dad had, had grown up on a farm as a kid, but he hadn't been active on a farm in quite a while. And so this was how we were jumping back into it. The Pearsons jump in with both feet. <laughs> and um, we had a sow die. And, uh, you know, she piglets were old enough. They were weaned. We had them taken care of. But the sow died. And, you know, the rendering truck at the time, I'm sure it was like $20 to have the renderer come and pick it up. It's the mid-80s. There's no cash available. Mom was working part-time. Dad had a job off the farm. You know, we're just trying to keep things afloat, two kids at home. And we were driving through a construction site, and my dad was a very chatty guy, and we were talking to the stop slow sign person. Mm-hmm. And Dad just hit the window down, and we're just BSing with this guy. And Dad goes, oh, yeah, I got to tell you, we had this sow die, and I don't want to pay the rendering truck to come and get her. I don't know what we're going to do. And this guy goes, well, hey, just haul her out in the pasture, throw some diesel on her, and light her up. Oh, my and, goodness. Dad you know, thought that was brilliant. So that's what we did. We hauled her out in the pasture. We, we you know, soaked her in diesel pretty good and got the fire going. And for weeks afterwards, our dogs would come up to us with barbecued hunks of sow. Oh, and they'd no. drop it on the front porch. And uh, I tell you, I don't recommend diesel fuel if you're looking to smoke any pork products. It, it does a little something to the flavor. It's, it's not the same. Mm. All right. Thanks for that, too. Yeah, yeah. The good so, thing there yeah. was, was the the sow was already dead though. In this case, they yeah, were that, not. Right. That is that is messed up. Yeah, it is. Don't recommend watching it if you've got a weak stomach. And I do. I don't think I could watch. Yeah. That. Yeah. 
Um, I tell you what, I've got a story here. You know, we, we're going to talk quite a bit about the markets here over the next several weeks as this weather market continues to affect corn and soybean prices. Another country that is actively watching our markets, well, naturally, is Brazil. And Brazilian sugar mills, the main ethanol producer down in Brazil, are actively watching the U.S. corn crop. And they are thinking that this shortage, if it does turn into a shortage of grain, could be quite the boon for Brazilian corn. Over the past several years, American ethanol has been making its way into the northeast part of Brazil. It's very cost-effective for us to ship it out of the Gulf right down to those uh, those provinces in northeast Brazil. Now, Brazilian ethanol plants in the southern part of the country, down around Mato Grosso, Mato Grosso del Sol, uh, you know, Sao Paulo, around in there, they're now going, hey, if the corn crop up north is short, we can shrink our ethanol production or our sugar production back, produce more ethanol from the sugar cane rather than sugar, and then ship it up to these northeastern provinces. So we could see the U.S. lose some ethanol market share down in Brazil, and the Brazilians are also looking at maybe this is the year they become a larger ethanol importer hmm. to the United States itself. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, and a lot, of course, as we get into the fall, we begin to see what this harvest looked like. Yeah. A lot of that is going to depend on whether or not the dollar maintains its strength. Right now, the Brazilian real is very uh, Brazilian real rather is very weak compared to the dollar, and that's kind of what's putting a little more wind in their sails as we sit here in uh, June of 2019. Yeah, well, I think one other factor that's going to play into this is is Barge movements in the U.S. especially, um, just to bring things back domestically here, we've seen the Mississippi River system really be impacted hugely because of the flooding this year, damaging personal properties, towns, bridges, farms, etc. And we've only seen 12 barges make their way up to St. Paul, Minneapolis, or Minnesota, excuse me, and so far, the shipping season, only 12 barges. I thought that was crazy. Only 12 barges the entire time the river's been open? Yes. Wow. You know, it blew me away, Delaney, coming, going to and coming back from Chicago this past weekend. Usually when you cross the river there at Davenport, there's not, not a lineup of barges, but you can almost always see one mm -hmm. or two coming or going in one direction. And the river was completely quiet. It was eerie to me to see that here in, uh, in mid-June. Yeah. And so that's just those barges have been in the upper part of the Mississippi. So we haven't seen only 12 barges for the whole Mississippi River right. system. Twelve that have made it all the way to St. Paul. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Right. But. Well, I, yeah. Well, just in general, the whole Mississippi River system has seen 15 percent fewer barges than last time or than at this point last year. Right. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, high river levels are certainly being a major issue. And I was going to say, I read an article earlier today, you know, we talked a lot about Midwestern agriculture being affected by the floods. I hadn't considered southern agriculture outside of the corn and soybean and cotton growing region of the Delta. But southern fisheries in Mississippi and Louisiana are being absolutely hammered because there is so much fresh water coming down the Mississippi that now, of course, they're diverting it into Lake Pontchartrain. They're diverting it into the Absalaya, Falla, Falla, I don't know, I don't speak Cajun, uh, river system, which feeds all those Cajun swamps. Mm -hmm. Oyster beds 
have been absolutely decimated. Some oyster farmers are saying their harvest is 90% less than it was a year ago. We're seeing shrimp and crabs flee to deeper water where it's saltier because so much fresh water has moved in. It's reduced the salt content near the coastline. And so now all of these small shrimpers are being forced to go out deeper, and they just can't catch these shrimps. Shrimp. And so the uh, the big shrimp boats are doing all of the, the catching, and shrimp landings are way down. I That aspect of it hadn't concerned me. I'd sent some emails out to try to get an update on our friends from the south because shrimping, fishing, oystering, that's all agriculture. <laughs> Those are our, our brothers and sisters in arms, and we got to see how it's affecting them down in Cajun country. Hmm. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that either. Yeah, yeah, that was news to me. It jumped up. I'm on a, I'm on a sailing message board, and a bunch of the oh. sailors were talking about it. Huh. Well, yeah, see if you could get an update for us. That'd be fascinating. I'm trying. I'm trying. Listeners, stay tuned. <laughs> All right. Well, I am out of news for today. Mike, do you have anything else to share? Just one quick update, not shocking to any of our listeners, I would suppose, but Bayer has announced, has asked a California judge to overrule the $2 billion verdict by the uh, the jurors who found on behalf of the couple who both had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The jury blamed it on uh, Roundup. Uh, Bayer says that verdict was based on, quote, inflammatory, fabricated, and irrelevant evidence coming from the couple's lawyers, and they want a judge to overturn it. Uh, the judge hasn't announced whether or not they're going to proceed, but uh, Bayer is certainly continuing to fight that fight as they continue to fight two other jury verdicts. Uh, the one against the uh, the groundskeeper who got 289 million that has since been reduced to 78 million and a 50 million dollar finding excuse me yes yes 50 million dollar finding 80 million dollar finding in San Francisco and all those cases juries believe that Roundup caused their cancer and they were punitive damages put on Bayer that Bayer is now fighting. Okay. Well, that is something we will continue to watch as well. All right, folks. Well, let's jump into the markets, Delaney. We've got mixed trade today. It's a volatile day. What do you say? Should we see what happened in the trade today? Let's do it, Mike. All right, folks. And our markets are brought to us by our friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, you can manage your marketing risks. None of us know what's coming down the pipe. We can put a plan in place. We can execute that plan with the best information we have available, and you can do that with our friends at Zaner. Give them a shout, 312-277-0050, or visit them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com, and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. In the corn market, September corn was down six cents on the day at four fifty-five and a half. December contract down five and a half, finished at four sixty-three even. In soybeans, really the only green in the in the grain markets today. The August contract was up a penny at nine twenty and a quarter. November up three quarters of a cent to close at nine forty and a quarter. In wheat, the September contract was down seven and a quarter cents at five thirty-five and a half. December also down seven and a quarter, closed the day at five forty-six and three quarters. Jumping over to the livestock trade, we saw mixed trade in live cattle. The August contract was down seven and a half cents at one oh five fifty five, with October up thirty-five cents to close the day at one oh seven oh five. Feeder cattle caught a little bit of a bid today. The August contract was up thirty-two and a half cents at one thirty-seven twenty-five. September up forty-two fifty to finish at one thirty-seven sixty. And in lean hogs, the August contract down fifty-five cents, well off the lows. Rallied back at the close, just didn't quite make it to the green. Finished the day at eighty-one seventy, with the October down seventeen and a half to close at seventy-six sixty. And of course, we've got to look at our friends in the dairy industry. Class three milk June was unchanged at sixteen twenty-eight, with the July up six cents, 
closed at 1687. Without further ado, it is hashtag Tech Tuesday. So we're going to go back to our friends at SmartAg, but this time have a conversation with Tim Norris. Well, folks, for today's Hashtag Tech Tuesday segment, we are catching up with a company that we have been following with a lot of interest for the past few years. That company is SmartAg. We had Colin Hurd, the founder and president of the firm, on last year to give us an update. And now, since it's been about a year, they've been continuing to develop tools for autonomous tractors and grain carts. Now we want to get a feel for what has happened over the fall and into this spring. And to help us get a feel for that is Tim Norris. Tim is the Eastern Region Business Director. And Tim, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, thanks for allowing me to. Well, we need to get the Tim Norris story. Bring us up to speed. What's your background and how'd you get in with SmartAg? Well, as far as my background, um, I went to uh, crops development school for uh, the co-op system and I saw a brand new thing back in 1995 and 1996 called grid soil sampling. And I saw this out of the Lion IFS in Illinois, and I thought, wow, if this can work out here where you have these huge fields and there's only two different soil types, what could that do in central Ohio where we have smaller fields with way more soil types in it than what they have in Illinois? And it just really, it just clicked to me that this is a technology that I could bring home and utilize. So um, I started out with a company, with a co-op in uh, Sunrise, called Sunrise Co-op in, in Ohio, and started their precision ag program, moved back to my home and started a precision ag program there. And then a new technology came out um, in 98 that uh, was called Auto Steer. And I just, the first time I saw that, it's like, this makes sense. This is another technology that I think is going to take off. And so um, the co-op that I was with at that point did not really want to get involved with auto steer. So I went out and started my own company called Ag Infotech, um, which I recently sold um, just this February uh, to a couple of the guys that uh, are uh, were working for me there. And uh, at that point, I had something else I, I needed to do, and I wasn't sure what that was. The opportunity came along with Smart Ag. Uh, we were a dealer for Smart Ag at Ag Infotech last year, and uh, again, that was another technology that it's just like, wow, I, I can see the potential in uh, autonomy. I can see how it can benefit the growers, and I just really wanted to be involved. So when the opportunity became available to be the uh, Eastern Region Business Director, I, I seized it, and uh, it's been been an exciting ride uh, since February. That's fantastic. So, I mean, you've backed some some pretty powerful horses here over the years, grid sampling, auto steer, and now autonomy. When you look out at the world that you cover, the eastern business region for smart ag, what do you think is going to drive the adoption of autonomous or, or making tractors autonomous to run in the field? Is it simply lack of qualified labor? Well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, that's what a lot of people think of is, is lack of labor. And that's one of the biggest concerns that we hear from growers. But really, the, the, the main reason and the thing that kind of got Colin um, excited about autonomy was, was he was a, a person that was really focused a lot on compaction. And one of the things that he um, tried to do in his senior project was, to come up with a solution for compaction, and he came up with a product called Tractill. And basically, Tractill 
was a tillage tool that just went where your tracks were for the tractor and tried to loosen that soil up to, to bust up the compaction. He ended up selling that company to uh, a company called Yetter, and uh, Yetter now has the track till product. And so in his mind, he's thinking, okay, I still want to work focus on compaction. And one of the things he thought of was these huge implements because that kept coming back and back and back. And we view that autonomy in the future can be a platform that helps our implements get back to a smaller size and cause less compaction. Another thing that we uh, are, you know, contemplating is is how to plan our paths to cause the least amount of compaction in a field. Um, we don't have solutions right now for compaction, but that's one of the things we're trying to do is trying to figure out how can we make this grain cart always drive in the same path or basically take the path that's going to cause the least amount of damage to the field because once, you know, they say, what, 75 or something percent of the compaction is done on the first pass, then let's drive over that same pass as much as we can again. So so I believe it's twofold, lack of labor um, and compaction. And I also, you know, just feel that uh, our windows are getting so small to plant and harvest, and that's extremely evident last fall and the last two springs we've had. And so the more efficient we can be with our time, um, the better we are, I think, as well. So I think those are the three main factors that will drive autonomy forward. Fascinating. And so I, I think you said something there that, to me, really jumps out. The move in the future towards smaller implements that are autonomous, allowing one grower to continue to perform the functions that you need today, a 1,000 bushel grain cart to fulfill, but now you can do it with with smaller pieces of equipment, with smaller, less impact on the field. So, so really, the technology that you're putting out today is a bridge, utilizing what we have today, but bridging towards that future. Is that kind of how you see it? Yeah, Smart Ag's uh, vision is to become the autonomous platform of the future. Unfortunately, to do that, we've had to develop a lot of hardware. Um, so we've had to develop the hardware for the existing tractors that are there. But what, the way we're really building our whole platform is to work with any piece of equipment, anything that we need to drive autonomously. We're wanting that the electronics and the software to be able to do that. So our, our end goal would be as, as, you know, equipment companies build tractors that could interface with our technology, we could utilize that on smaller tractors. And you know, to me, I think you think about a 24-row corn planter and you look at all the extra iron that's on that just to get it to fold to be able to drive it down the road. So that creates a lot of extra weight. Um, if you're driving through the countryside and you start to see where these big planters have ran, you can pretty much always tell where the pinch rows are. Mm -hmm. And if we can eliminate a lot of that weight and just maybe have four six-row planters running and maybe one guy is controlling all four planters, he's still planting 24 rows at a time. But what happens if, like, one of those rows go bad, one part on it breaks? On a 24-row planter, 24 rows stop. If you had four or six row planters that are planting 24 at a time, you'd still have 18 running while those six are, are stopped and getting repaired. So I think there's a lot of benefits uh, for that, for, for timing as well. So I think it, it's a little far off in the future where you start to see things like that, but um, that's really where we're kind of focusing 
is building that autonomous platform. We don't really know what all vehicles it'll be used on in the future, but we want to build the platform that'll take us there. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Well, now, let's bring us up to speed. So SmartAg has been around for several years. You've been developing the hardware and the software to make the tractors run. And I know last fall you were actually able to get some of the equipment out in the hands of growers out in the fields. Bring us up to speed. What was the response? What did you learn now that, that growers were utilizing it in the field? And how are you set up for 2019, which, as you say, has been quite a challenging year so far? Well, Ag Infotech, the company that I, I used to own, um, we had the first one that actually hit the field um, of the beta systems, um, and that we got that in uh, was early October, I believe. So it's kind of after harvest started. Um, things went very well, um, but yet we also learned a lot of things as well. Uh, one is people my age have a little bit of trouble seeing the iPad and trying to control the iPad while you're controlling the the combine at the same time, and we had several button pushes uh, that were required to get the, the uh, tractor to come over and sync with the combine. So for this year, we're streamlining that and making it very simple, bigger buttons, brighter buttons. But as you're bouncing through the field in a combine trying to do everything, it's sometimes hard to hit those little buttons and see which button it is you're supposed to hit. So we kind of realized that that iPads are a little bit more of a challenge for people of my generation versus the younger generations. So, um, you know, we're trying to redesign, we completely redesign the interface, user interface to make it much simpler. Um, another thing we found is that uh, the uh, AI or the artificial intelligence um, portion of the tractor, uh, we needed to have some redundancy uh, to meet a new standard that OSHA put out for um, autonomy. So, even though we had a very good and very successful test season last year, what we really want to do is we wanted to redevelop and re-engineer uh, the system to be able to be um, OSHA compliant, or not OSHA, but uh, ISO compliant. Hmm. And so the engineers went back, redesigned the system. We have redundant systems on brakes, uh, being able to control the tractor. Every system that we control, we have a redundant or backup system uh, to take over in case that first system doesn't work. So we're really excited to be putting another 12 systems out in beta this year, and then we're going to market in 2020, April of 2020, to actually sell production models. That's incredible. Just watching the growth and the, the development process that SmartAg has engaged in over the past couple of years has been fascinating for me as a non-tech guy, just seeing the change happen in the field. Now, SmartEgg was developed at least initially. The initial uh, uh, demo units are designed for that grain cart operator. When you go to market in 2020, do you see farmers putting this technology into use in other aspects of their farm, or will it still be primarily grain carted harvest that, uh, that growers are really going to see the biggest bang for their buck, so to speak? So the systems that we're going to sell in April, starting in April of 2020, will be grain cart only. Um, but we wanted to start there. One of the big challenges is when you're starting to automate, you don't just have to really automate the tractor, but you have to have the implement ready to be autonomous as well. And the grain cart is one of the easiest implements to mechanize or you know make make autonomous. Um, so 
as of right now, will be grain cart only, but we're building the platform to where we can just add the components on when we want to go to tillage, planting, spraying, harvest, etc. So the base platform and everything the grower buys will, will pretty much be the same, and we'll just have to add on a few additional um, extra components to be able to monitor the implements and things like that when we get to planting, harvest, spraying, tillage. Um, but all that's on our roadmap. Um, we need to get this first initial uh, grain cart system launched and out, and then we'll start work on, on the others. We're not sure which one we're going to tackle yet, but uh, as soon as we get the grain cart done, that's what we're going to, to focus on. It's incredible. I remember one of the things Colin said when we spoke to him last year was that part of the reason for focusing on the grain cart was, A, as you mentioned, the implement itself is is fairly easy to autonomize or whatever the correct conjugation for that is. And also, it's one of the more complex tasks on the farm, not running over standing corn, getting back to a moving combine, meeting up with the grain or the, the semi, etc., when you think about the future, Tim, there are a lot of challenges you have yet to to, to surmount. What what to you is the most exciting in the medium term, the next three to five years? What has you fired up the most about the future of Smart Ag? Um, to me, I, the 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 thing that I would love to see tackled the most and is the most exciting would be spraying. That is a job that pretty much no farmer wants to do. And then you look at the size of the sprayers um, that we've gotten lately, I can see huge, tremendous economic benefits to um, making the sprayer autonomous and much smaller. I also see tremendous benefits to the artificial intelligence um, that's coming now to be able to analyze a photo and start to be able to figure out, you know, okay, this is a ragweed. This is a, uh, you know, oakberry. This is, you know, Johnson grass. This is quack grass. You know, whatever it's seeing, the AI can start to analyze that picture and see what it is it's seeing. We can, we can see now from, uh, you know, an airplane photo, down to the leaf level and see what insects are eating the leaves. So I think as we start to integrate technologies like that with an autonomous system like a sprayer, I see tremendous amounts of uh, economic benefit and environmental benefits by only spraying the right herbicide in the right place and not having to use, um, you know, chemicals as a broadacre but just doing more of a spot treatment. And I feel that small autonomous sprayers will be able to deliver that type of service to the grower. Um, so to me, that's what excites me the most. I don't know that that's three to five years, but I'm sure hoping it is. Absolutely. Tim, final question for you. You got started in Precision Ag in the mid-1990s. Back then, it was just getting started. Did you, in your wildest dreams, imagine that Precision Ag would be as precise as it is today, just a short 15 years later, 20 years later? No, definitely not. Um, and I didn't think it would be as widely adopted as it is either. Um one of the things that really surprised me, though, is when I first saw AutoSteer, I thought, wow, I bet in five years we're going to have vehicles that drive themselves. <laughs> so I'm surprised it's taken this long to get there. 
And the other thing that surprised me, I always thought we'd see it on the farm before we see it on the highway. And, you know, realistically, we're using a lot of the technology that the automakers are utilizing um, in our, you know, in our systems to uh, for autonomy for the farm. So it, it's kind of interesting to me that the, you know, auto industry has been more of a driver than, than the ag industry. It is incredible stuff. Tim, before we let you go, if our listeners want to keep track of everything that's happening at Smart Ag, if they want to be sure they are able to get first in line there next April, where's the best place to go? How can they keep up to speed? Um, basically, what I would like to see them do is just give us an e- send us an email at uh, sales at uh, smart-ag.com, and uh, we'll be glad to get them on our email list. Um, we're unfortunately not updating the website as much as we are uh, the email. So uh, they can definitely go to the uh, website, which is smart-ag.com, and uh, send us an email through there as well if they want to be um, on our mailing list. So that would be the, the recommended way at this point. Fantastic. Tim Norris, Eastern Region Business Director at SmartAg, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate your insight. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having us on. All right. Well, it sounds like you had a great conversation there with Tim Norris, Mike. And folks, we're always looking for suggestions for our Tech Tuesday or really any topic of discussion that you'd like to hear on the, here, here on the Ag News Daily podcast. You can reach us on Facebook and on Twitter at Ag News Daily. Or if they want to catch up on any past episodes, Mike, how can they do that? They should hop in their web browser right now if it's raining and you're stuck at home, folks. This is the time to listen to podcasts while you're doing some catch-up maintenance or maybe some repeat maintenance on your planter or sprayer or whatever else. Go to agnewsdaily.com. It will take you direct to our new home at the Global Ag Network. You can listen to our past episodes. You can listen to Girls Talk Ag, the Working Cows podcast, the Dryline Farmer podcast, our new premier podcast, uh, just all sorts of great content there. Dive in. Let us know what you think. If you've got thoughts or opinions, tweet at us. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at Ag News Daily. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.